0: I would invite you this morning to turn to the book of Romans once again. Romans, we're in the third chapter, um, but I'd like to, this morning, take chapter 3 and particularly the 10 references that Paul gives to us uh, from the Old Testament scriptures, from the, principally the, the writings, that is the Psalms, a bit of Proverbs I think is found in some of these quotations and also um, the book of um, uh, the uh, the prophets, particularly the book of Isaiah. Imagine ten Old Testament statements in what we call a katina. And it's the longest place in which Paul um, quotes a series of Old Testament texts, which is what a katina is. Uh, another word of, for, for what Paul's doing here in the history of the church is a testimonia. Which I guess is the Latin way to, to see it. It's, it's testimony that Paul brings. You know, we're two or three witnesses, um, every, with two or three witnesses, every word would be established. Well, the idea that Scripture provides testimony. You know, Jesus says, uh, They testify of me. These are they that give um, witness to me. Jesus says it's the Old Testament that provides testimonia to, to him to himself. and uh, So Paul gives us uh, ten statements in uh, really ten verses of Scripture. or uh, Maybe not ten verses, so maybe seven or eight verses, but he just compiles text upon text upon text upon text. And it's not a, something unique to just this point, where he wants to prove that uh, all are under sin. So we'll find some text in the Old Testament that says we're all under sin. Um, but really, all through the book of Romans, more than 60 times in fact, Paul gives us direct citations from the Old Testament scriptures. There's only 16 chapters and he gives us more than 60 citations. But it's not just citations that he does. He's giving us constant allusions to the Old Testament. He makes the Old Testament central to his argument in the book of Romans. And he says, in essence, if you don't understand the teaching of the Old Testament, you're not going to get what I'm telling you here in the book of Romans. I think one of the real heresies or problems that lead to heresy is our failure to have a whole Bible. It's our failure to have the whole of Scripture form our understandings and ideas about what truth is. Uh, in fact, the church has recognized that. You know what the first actually designated heretics w- were in, his, in church history? Who knows? What, what, who's the first guy who was actually named to be a heresy, her, 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 heretic, uh, really evicted from, uh, I think it was the church at Rome that he was part of a little later on, maybe a, half a century later than Paul writes this letter. It's a guy named Marcion. I'm sorry? You said Marcion. Okay, good. Marcion's problem was he hated the Old Testament. He thought the God of the Old Testament was not the God who's revealed himself in Jesus. That God's a God of wrath, a God of hatred, a God of enmity, a God of war, a God of this, a God of that. And Jesus comes to bring us a completely different God. And he made his arguments and the church said no. The church says we reject that notion. In fact, Marcion is really one of the reasons we have a New Testament canon. Because Marcion came along and said, we can't trust any of these books of the Bible except... And he said, uh, he, what he did was basically he gave us a modified uh, Gospel of Luke. He edited it. and Thomas Jefferson wasn't the first to take uh, scissors and paste... To, um, edit his own Bible Marcion endeavored to edit the gospel of Luke and say well that's good and some of the letters of Paul but but the rest we just cast out the rest we don't have anything to do with Um, and the church said again we have to define what books we receive what the church did was they received the Old Testament canon that the Jews had and the law and prophets, the books that are authoritative and they're to be teaching from those books as the books that principally teach us the will of God and because it's the word of God and then they formed the New Testament canon. Now the idea of canon came really as a result of uh, Marcion denying certain books as authoritative, particularly the Old Testament and other New Testament books as well. But again, we're in the place where we understand we don't pick and choose. We take the Bible as a whole. We take the Bible as a witness to Christ. In fact, the Old Testament is two-thirds of the Bible. Most of the Bible is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is that which forms the basis for the New Testament. When you think of Paul writing this letter to the church at Rome, what was their Bible? When Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome, what, what was their Bible? I mean, were they reading Romans? Well, hadn't yet written it. They're going to get Romans once they receive it. Um, they likely didn't have the Gospels. Mark may have been written. That, uh, this, that's debatable at this point. Likely the other Gospels were not yet written. Certainly John wasn't written, and probably Luke wasn't written. Maybe they had Mark, but uh, it's hard to know. Um, their, Old Test- their Bible was the Old Testament. Their Bible was the Old Testament, the authoritative word of God. And that's what's constantly being appealed to. Of course, when Paul speaks about his gospel, the things he says that he preached in Rome at uh, Corinth, that they received, the things in which they stood, is what? That Christ died for our sins. What? What's the next words? everybody know? According to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised from the dead the third day. According to the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, when Paul wrote Corinthians, it was the Old Testament scriptures that bore witness to the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. You see, Jesus took the disciples on the road to Emmaus and did Bible study with them and showed them from the Psalms, the um, the, uh, the writings, the law, and the prophets, all the things concerning himself. His Bible study was Old Testament. Now we have in our modern world uh, and in the modern church something of a problem that really has resulted from two p- principled points of pressure, not so much Marcy, and he's he's gone and and done with, but liberalism came along in the early part of the the early part of the 20th century maybe the latter part of the 19th century and they began to really, really say that the God of the Old Testament was not uh, the, the true God and uh, Jesus came to preach another God a God of love and a God of uh, not a God of wrath uh, of course uh, they didn't really understand Jesus did they? And all the references to Gehenna that Jesus made they really didn't understand that uh, you know, grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ are actually words that uh, describe what God revealed of himself to Moses on Mount Sinai the God of grace and truth Lord the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundance and loving kindness and truth. And they tried to make this large separation, this large bifurcation between Old and New Testament. New Testament, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and that's stuff we can believe in, that's stuff we can teach, that's stuff we like, that's stuff that accords with our own understandings before we have opened the Bible to begin with. You know, we're not going to be instructed really by anything that conflicts with our own modernist point of view, is basically what they were saying. And they were not going to be instructed by, um, really not even the New Testament, strictly speaking, what they liked in the New Testament, but they didn't like much of the Old Testament. So they simply made that a, a different uh, a different God, a different uh, religion. And um, that's simply not the case. That's not the case. And then the second thing that's influenced the modern evangelical church has been a premillennial dispensationalist, dispensationalism. Now, I love you all, I know you all love your Schofield Bible, and that's fine to love your Schofield Bible. I'm not going to say anything against it. But one of the real drawbacks of that whole system of thinking is that is God has come in different eras, different epochs of time, to reveal his mind and to reveal his will, and there's really a little spillover from one epoch to another epoch to another epoch to another epoch, and so you have these uh, compartmentalized time frames in which certain things, certain truths, certain ideas, certain notions are, are there, and and, and uh, the things of the Old Testament that belong to the era of grace, also um, the sorry, the era of, era of law. And now we're in the era of grace and so grace is the thing that predominates laws out the window so um, we don't really have to mind all that much of what is in the Old Testament. In fact, some of these people even take away parts of the New Testament they don't like because they think that's part of the law. Sermon on the Mount, they designate that as part of law. Well, at least the old dispensationalists did. There's all kinds of modifications of the dispensational system that makes it less um, less uh, difficult. Uh, yeah, uh, Mike, you have a question or a comment? Yeah, um, I remember reading that a lot of the early followers of John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby, who we're, really was the beginning, began this whole system of we're, thinking. Were using the Book of Acts to, to do away with baptism. They were anti-baptism yeah. people, and, yeah. I mean, they really sectioned off oh, every, yeah. every point, even within the same book. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of... Uh, Ways the dispensational, dispensate, all kinds of ways the dispensational system was taught, um, to where they talk about ultra dispensationalism and they talk about, and there's, there's all kinds of different ways these things have been constructed. But, um, and I really think it's, it's, it's off the mark. It's really off the mark because we have the unity of the themes of scripture that really go from creation to new creation. There's just no reason to think that. A book that's bracketed by creation at the beginning, new creation at the end, is a book that's filled with all kinds of diversity that doesn't continue on. I mean, there are things that are true of old and not true of new. But it comes into the new in different ways. Like, we don't meet in the temple, but we are the temple. We are the temple. So the idea of temple is not eviscerated because we're new covenant believers. Um, The idea of the Abrahamic Covenant is not so much, uh, but yet we are children of Abraham. So all the themes of the Old Testament, they spill over into the New, and it's a unified book. It's something that you can't cordon off into these different periods of time and see no overflow. Everything is kind of building up to what we finally find in the revelation that God's given to Himself in the New Testament, so there's kind of like a seamless whole, whole that we have in in the Scriptures, and that's why Paul writing sixteen chapters to a church in Rome, and again, it's a Gentile church. It's not a Jew. It's not like these people got raised on the Old Testament. They uh, they they soaked it in in the synagogue. They were not. They may have been a lot of them uh, God-fearers who came to the synagogue and worshiped, but there were a lot of Gentiles who had no. Exposure to the Old Testament, no instruction in the Old Testament, and yet Paul can write a letter to them with the assumption, if they're new covenant Christians, they know the Old Covenant, they know the Old Testament, because they're being taught it in their churches. The church is teaching the Old Testament scriptures. Now the great troubling thing is that the majority, I won't say majority, a whole lot, I'll put it that way, many New Testament churches today don't teach much of the Old Testament. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons we, we get into some of the sloppy ways of viewing God, so a lot of the sloppy ways of understanding moral instruction. Um, Is because we are dealing with only a third of our Bibles and not really recognizing the unity of the, of the latter third with the first two thirds. But read Romans. Paul's going back to Old Testament over and over and over again, and you can't teach the New Testament without reference to the Old Testament. It's impossible to at least honestly, at least honestly, at least in terms of understanding its 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 meaning and significance. I mean, go back to chapter one. Paul bases this whole letter, this whole gospel, upon the Old Testament scriptures. Romans 1 and verse 1 Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures The gospel is promised in the Old Testament in what we call the well we call it the Old Testament the Jews called it the Bible Uh, We call it, uh, uh, modern people like to call it the Hebrew Bible because it's the part of the Bible that's in the Hebrew language, at least most of it. The Hebrew Bible is okay. All those terms are okay. Um, But it's in the Holy Scriptures through his prophets concerning his son. Descended from David. Where do you learn about David? You can read the New Testament and read about David without knowing the Old Testament, not knowing the history of David. Well, Paul assumes you know about David. He's the son of David according to the flesh, and he can assume that people hearing that are thinking David the king. And the promise of kingship to David, that from David's uh, descendants there would emerge a king. There would always be a king in Israel because God's covenant with David. He's assuming the people there understand. The son of David, according to the flesh, marks out Jesus' messianic identity. Declared to be the Holy Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead now, grant you, resurrection of the dead is New Testament but Paul says he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures so it has its rootage in the Old Testament as well but then when he moves on to speak about the theme of his gospel the very theme where he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel verse 16 is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith he can't think of his thesis statement which is what this is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. from faith to faith, without buttressing that, with an Old Testament passage, Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's the first direct quote that you have of the Old Testament. But it comes in the context of Paul's thesis statement. <laughs> what this book is all about. The righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith is not, it's not a new idea. It's not just something that's come down the pike. That's the way God's always justified his people. That's the way God has always brought his blessings to his people. He's given his people his word, called upon them to believe it, and in believing and trusting in his word, uh, good things happen. Blessing, peace, joy happens as a result of, the, of faith in his word. So there's not a, a new dispensation that's come along that's now teaching a new thing that wasn't known in the Old Testament. Uh, this unity between the two and then all the language that you have in chapter 1 goes back to the Psalms they exchange the truth of God for life worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever what's that Psalm 106 I think it is well, you probably have it in your Bibles in a cross reference but it's, it's a reference to the Old Testament Now, Paul hardly uses words that don't have some kind of a linkage to Old Testament, he's a, he's a rabbi, he was, he was groomed in the Old Testament, and when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, there wasn't a question of jettisoning the Old Testament, because I, now, now I have the Savior who's come and he's revealed himself to me on the Damascus road, and now that becomes the major influence in my life as an apostle, I met Jesus on the Damascus road. No, the Jesus he met on the Damascus road was the Jesus who took the disciples on the road to Emmaus, his 11 later on in the Gospel of Luke, and showed them from the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Jesus that met Paul on the road to Damascus did not tell Paul, now that you met me, you can put away your Hebrew Bible. (laughs) Because you have me now. He says, no, 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 no. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, so don't put your Old Testament away. See me as I'm revealed throughout the length and breadth of the Old Testament. And then, of course, we have this major quotation, this catena that comes in chapter 3, Old Testament passage after passage after passage after passage, buttressing the reality of sin. And it's not just that, well, we have Jesus in the Old Testament, so let's preach the Old Testament when uh, Christmas comes and we have the Messianic prophecies. No, sin is Old Testament. You learn about sin in the Old Testament. And so it's... um, There's no distinction. We've charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin as it is written. I might just pause here to say what I said last week. These passages from the Old Testament affirm that it's not just Jewish people who have apostatized and sinned and are under guilt, like a David when he sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah but it's Gentiles as well because a lot of these passages refer to Gentiles as well Uh, I'm not going to go back and look up each passage with you but I'm I think if you go back and look at them, you'll see that there are sections that are dealing with the Jews and their apostasy from God, their sin, but then there's others that are more general that speak of all men everywhere being under sin and Gentiles in their uh, idolatries, in their worship of idols, particularly in the quotations that come from the prophets um, address those issues and concerns. Jew and Gentile, all under sin. Old Testament demonstrates that and Paul's not teaching us anything new. He's teaching us what is there in the Old Testament scriptures. And then you come into his his exposition of the righteousness of God manifest by faith. When he starts to talk about justification by faith, he he has to go back to what he already told us about the gospel, um, because he says in verse 21 of chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. So it's apart from the law in the sense that we can um, attain this righteousness by our efforts, by our obedience. No, that's, that, he rules that out. This chapter 3 and verse 21. That the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law as a system of works righteousness. But yet it's, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Again, testimonia, Witness. The Old Testament scriptures bear witness not only to sin, but also to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might well think of the way in which Paul can write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And you know, we pin a lot upon that statement that Paul makes about the the Bible in 2 2 Timothy 3. That's where he says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, or literally God-breathed. All scripture has been breathed out of the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we don't get that from Jesus. We get that from Moses. Jesus quotes it in um, Matthew and in Luke. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's what we live by. We can't ignore the Old Testament or not see the relationship of the New Testament to the Old Testament. But Paul says, uh, in, uh, in, in that context, he says that from a child, Timothy, you have learned the sacred writings. Now, what sacred writings was Timothy learning when he was a child? <laughs> Again, we already said in the time of Paul's letter writing, there might not have been a lot of the books already written of the New Testament. But certainly when Timothy was a child, you don't have any New Testament books written. When Timothy was a child, he learned the scriptures from his grandma and his mom. And Paul says of those scriptures that you learn from grandma and mommy, that through those scriptures, you were made wise unto salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. When I came to the end to preach Jesus, I I showed you from the law and the prophets, Jesus. I showed you. I reasoned from the scriptures and butchers everything I told you about Jesus with what the prophets said, what the law said. Um, It's the Old Testament that provided the impetus for Timothy's faith when he saw. Oh, yeah, I see it. Yes. Jesus perfectly aligns with everything that the Old Testament said, but then he says every scripture is given by all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, which is in righteousness. Again, he's not just talking about New Testament books; he's talking about the Old Testament. It's able to do these things: not only teaches about sin, not only teaches about righteousness, but teaches about the God we serve, teaches about morality and ethics, teaches about who and what we are as believers. That's important to understand: is that. Again, he's going to go into chapters 9 through 11, and he's going to complete what he started in chapter 3. Remember chapter 3 we said last week? This whole matter of what advantage the Jew has, he says, much, uh, uh, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he takes up that thought again in chapter 9. And he says that his heart's desire is that they should be saved. He would be a curse from Christ for the sake of his brothers who are Israelites according to the flesh. And then he gives something of like, I think it was seven statements about what the Jew possessed. And again, what the Jew possessed is not something the Jew possesses exclusively. Any more than the oracles of God only belong to Israel. The oracles of God were entrusted to Israel, but the oracles of God are our inheritance they kept it, they preserved it they passed it on from generation to generation and we're thankful to God for that but we possess the oracles of God the same thing is true with the Israelites he says to them belong the adoption God said to Pharaoh let my son go that he might worship me in the wilderness Israel was his son to them belonged the adoption do they alone the sons of God No, we become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To us belongs the adoption. It's not just something pertinent to Israel. To us belongs the adoption. The glory. Does the glory only belong to them? The glory of God that was on Mount Sinai, where God appeared to them and revealed himself to them, then came upon the tabernacle and filled the place and filled the inner sanctuary and the Shekinah glory that they possessed in their midst. Does that only belong to them? We've received the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have the glory. Believers have these things that belong to Israel. We're thankful to God for that, for their testimony, for their preservation of these realities, for the way they speak of them in their scriptures. But these are things that we come to identify with and become part of our understanding of who and what we are as the new covenant people of God. Uh, Ida Schaefer wrote a book years ago. I think she, it was called Christianity is Jewish. And there's a sense in which that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely true. Because we enter into the blessings God gave to Israel. Adoption, glory, covenants. Covenants only belong to the people of Israel. Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. He offers up his blood is that which seals the deal with reference to the, the friendship of God, the, the, the reality of God's peace treaty with us uh, that he gave to Israel now is ours in Jesus Christ. That God is our God and we are his people. Uh, Paul can speak in the Ephesian letter of the covenants, plural, of the promise, singular. There were many covenants, but there's one promise, We are children of the promise. We are those who have received the promise of the gospel. The promise God gave of the Holy Spirit. The giving of the law. Now, The giving of the law, in the sense, if you're just thinking of the Ten Commandments, they're not our way of salvation, but they are our way of instruction. Because Torah does not just mean commandment. In fact, there's a wholly different word for commandment. But there is Torah. And Torah's teaching, Torah's divine instruction. So we're told we're told that the blessed man meditates in the law of God day and night. He's not just talking about the commandments. He's talking about the entirety of the instruction God has given to his people in the Torah. In the law. The Torah, of course, became to be what the first five books were known as, the five books of Moses. The Pentateuch is called the Torah. But Torah is instruction. That's what it is. And so the Psalms celebrate Torah. We are instructed out of the Word of God. The worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. And the point of the thing is, we don't understand who we are if we don't understand our relationship to these, these distinctively Jewish things. The through Christ becomes ours. In fact, Israel's history becomes our history. In chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says to a, a Gentile church at, at, at Rome, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, the Jewish father? <laughs> no, he says our father. Our father, according to the flesh... According to the flesh, um, he is our father. Um, We become children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, And it's not just the question... Of our justification. We get justified the same way Abraham got justified. Paul's going to say that. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. He was circumcised before he was, uh, uh, after he believed. After it was said of him, Abraham believed. It was, ju- it was reckoned to him for righteousness. That's chapter 15 of the book of, of Genesis. In chapter 17, he gives the command to circumcise. So prior to circumcision was justification. Prior to circumcision, he believed in God who was counted to him for righteousness. It's a very clever argument that Paul makes from the Old Testament. And if we just jettison the Old Testament or don't have reverence to the Old Testament, we don't have a clue what he's saying. This is a mystery to us, unless we understand the order of things that you find in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, but the point of it, it is that, verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are the heirs. Faith is null, and the promise is void. Um, but the point is that he is the, the the promise is not just that Abraham's the father of one nation, he's the father of many nations. And again, you go back to the Old Testament and you see the promise that God gave: that he would be a father not just of his own physical lineage, but that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And so that's why Paul goes on to say that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not just the Jewish aspect of his offspring but all of his offspring not only to the adherent of the law but also to one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. All of us look back to Abraham as our father. Jews, Gentiles, all alike have a connection to Abraham. Abraham's story becomes our story story of Israel becomes our story the story of the exodus is our story we've come to a new exodus Christ is our Passover I mean again and again and again our identity as new covenant believers is an Old Testament language Uh, Jesus can speak of uh, in the kingdom of God that they will come from the east the west the north and the south to sit down with who Abraham Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God um, the new city of uh, the city of the new New Jerusalem has the the pillars that are the I think the pillars are the patriarchs and the foundation stones are the apostles. The name of the apostles, the name of the patriarchs, comprise one unity of people. It's the people of God that inhabit the heavenly, the holy city that inhabit the New Jerusalem. Jews and Gentiles alike. Um, So there's just so much more. I mean, Paul can expressed our identity, and particularly Gentile identity. I can say lineage, you know, physically. I'll go back to Abraham somewhere along the line. We may have had a convert that brought my family into the identity with the Jews, but probably it's just... I mean, my my daughter did a a DNA thing, and uh, she has 50% Ashkenazi Jew, (laughs) <laughs> in our DNA, and she didn't get any from Jan. Believe me, uh, there's no no Jewish blood in her family. She got it all from me. So I probably 100% considered to be an Ashkenazi Jew. Ashkenazi being Eastern European. So I guess as far back as the DNA can track me, uh, that's uh, that's where, where what what they find. But what uh, Paul can say of the Gentiles that they have been grafted into the one olive tree that has as its roots the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. it's a Jewish tree it's a Jewish olive tree and the Gentiles get grafted in become part of the one people of God and you see it's, the, it's, it's, it's not the it's not the Gentile, it's not the Jews, come to be grafted into basically a Gentile thing I mean in the modern world that's our understanding the church is a Gentile church because in the world basically it is it is a Gentile church but when Jews become Christians there is a sense in which they've come back home they've come back at least to their ancestral blessings Belonged to them far longer back than it belonged to any of the Gentiles they, they, they got grafted in to a tree that has its roots, has its trunk, its history in Israel. And we become part of that history. And so Paul writes from that perspective and we don't understand him if we don't have that perspective. But he speaks about the church and the mystery of the church, Jew and Gentile in one body. You have to really understand the Old Testament promises with reference to the remnant, um, the promises that were given uh, to Hosea they are not my people they become my people those quotations from chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Hosea Paul is deeply embedded in his thinking and his writings in the Old Testament scriptures so that um, we don't understand him and we don't understand the New Testament at all if we don't understand its linkage to and it's being founded upon the writings of the Hebrew Scriptures. So I felt it was important to underscore that because we do live in a day where that's underappreciated, and it should be appreciated more. We, you know, we love our dispensational brethren, and we, um, but but we don't read the Bible the way they do. I mean, they, they read the Book of Revelation as if its uh, its understanding is being uncovered today, as you read the papers. And uh, they'll find Ukraine, they'll find Zelensky in the book of Revelation today. Uh, they'll f- but, th- but they've been finding, you know, Saddam Hussein in the book of Revelation, and he's long gone. I remember I was in a Bible college where a professor one day said to us, uh, as he was reading the papers or reading a news magazine, he couldn't help but think that, uh, I'm f- trying to think if I can remember the name, he was the Egyptian president that was assassinated Anwar Sadat thank you Anwar Sadat this Anwar Sadat and uh, Menachem Begin won the peace prize and making all things about peace Uh, he, he thinking that the end of everything is never going to be peace it's going to be conflict and war it's going to precede the second coming and we need to get things ratcheted up and that's the danger of some of this idea is that we think we need to get ratcheted up the crisis in order for Jesus to come things have to get worse and worse and worse and worse So why work for a better world we want things actually to get worse because, that, because our prophecy charts tell us it has to get worse before Christ returns. We want Christ to return, so let, every, let the whole world just disintegrate and, 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 and don't worry about being salt and light. But he said Anwar Sadat was the Antichrist because he, he, he was fearful of peace in the Middle East. Don't be fearful of peace in the Middle East folks because it conflicts with some kind of eschatological scheme you might have adopted. You know, blessed are the peacemakers will still be an aspect of biblical truth, not so much that it was they had any kind of lasting peace. It's the gospel that brings the peace but yet we should always love expressions of, uh, of peace in the world. But Doris, did you have a question or a comment? Yes, Pastor. I don't know um, I don't know the Bible or, or the, when it says where so we are uh, no, the olive tree, and we become like a graft. Yes, Romans eleven. Okay. Romans eleven. Let me read it to you. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, you know, Doris asked about the passage that talks about the olive tree and being grafted into the olive tree. And again, the the olive tree, or uh, sometimes it's the vine, that in the Old Testament is uh, is is Israel. Israel is the vine that God planted. The, this imagery of trees and plants and. Um, uh, vineyards and olive trees are all Old Testament references to the people of Israel. And so it's in the this Romans chapter where Paul is grappling with the whole question of Jewish unbelief and how that impinges upon the faithfulness of God and the promises of God and just how it can be that uh, God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled. Um, but he speaks uh, here uh, Again, he's underscoring this. Uh, he says now in verse 13, uh, he underscores the fact that the church is Gentiles. the Gentile church. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. In order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And that's Deuteronomy. You wouldn't understand what Paul means about being jealous or making them jealous, if you don't understand Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32 says that's exactly what God's going to do. If they're unfaithful, he's going to bring Gentiles into his favor and make them jealous. (laughs) See, you wouldn't know that if you don't know the Old Testament. You would be reading Paul thinking you know it. You know what it means, but you really don't. If you don't know what is the background of Paul's statements to make my fellow Jews jealous, read Deuteronomy 32. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what does their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I won't go into the, what that means, but uh, if the dough offered is first, for the first fruits is holy, uh, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he uses two uh, imageries of dough that uh, uh, becomes uh, uh, the, the le- we are leavened in, and the Passover imagery comes into that. I do believe, um, and, uh, uh, but he says that, uh, about this matter of the, of the root and the branches. Um, which he, That's what he takes to open up in the following verses. The root is holy, so are the branches. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. God has an olive tree. An olive tree that the roots were holy roots because they were the roots of the people that first received the divine promise. He says, uh, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are are remembered, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You've been grafted in. The root supports you, that Jewish root that you've been grafted into. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Do not be proud, but fear. If God did not spare the natural branches, again, the Jewish branches, neither will he spare you. So we're dealing with the holy root in the the patriarchs of of Israel, of uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of their descendants, and uh, now their unbelieving branches in the olive tree. God breaks them off. Same imagery Jesus uses about in John 15. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it might bear more fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit, He He cuts it off and burns it into the fire. God takes the Jewish branches that are unbelieving, breaks it off, and He grafts in you Gentiles. But you Gentiles are not grafted into a Gentile root, a Jewish root. It's not it's not Jews that are grafted into a Gentile thing. Just, they just come back to the Jewish thing that they've apostatized from. When a, Gentile, a Jew becomes a Christian, he just comes back home, in a sense. Um, there's a sense, which we're all adopted. We're all, we all stand by grace. There's no distinction. But there, as far as there are ethnic distinctions, it's in favor of the fact that God gave the promise, the, the law, the the covenants, the glory, the adoption, and all the rest to the Jews. And, you know, it's a Jewish thing that you Gentiles now have made, been made a part of. Sorry, Gentiles, that's just how it is. <laughs> and believe me, I don't say that because I have Jewish roots, because, you know, again, my Jewish family roots are not believing. And so they're not part of this Jewish thing that God, that God did. They, they, they're apostates from it, and that's that, and that, that's uh, that's a grievous thing. That's the thing that brought Paul heaviness of heart when he thought of that. But uh, again, you know, uh, we we live in the church world where anti-Semitism was a a, 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 a real reality, I mean we have people down in Charlottesville a while ago. The Jews are going to replace us. The Jews are going to replace us, and you got. Uh, You know, it's it's still a problem, still a problem in the world today, Um, and you can't do that in the name of Christianity. You you have you you have to understand that. Well, I'll just repeat Isa Schaefer's book: Christianity is Jewish. You're not sectarianly speaking, not in a divisive way, but just in a way that understands what God did in history. And what God did in history gave a historic priority to Israel. And that doesn't change. And so there ought to be some gratitude to what God did through Israel. Ultimately God gets all the glory but yet there can't be a, a hatred and there can't be a discountenancing of the Old Testament scriptures and there can't be uh, an insensitivity To the nature of the Christian faith and where it came from, and what its whole pervasive worldview is, you can't just go along and say, "Well, we have to make everything modern and contemporary and just cast off," because anything the Bible means today is what it meant back then, and you know we have all kinds of ideas. Oh, it must mean this. It must mean this. It must mean that. Well, if you don't come to grips with what it meant (laughs) when it was first given you're probably never going to get really a clear understanding of what it means. Again, we understand what it meant and now we make application to what it means for us today. So this is not just uh, theory. This is something that brings us into the whole world of practical Christian living. Which also, I I didn't bring it up. There's several other really important threads of thought that I'm not going to get to this morning just because our time is mostly gone. But for instance, in chapter 13, you know, we've seen that the gospel is Old Testament. We've seen that Paul's thesis statement is uh, is Old Testament born witness to by Habakkuk we've seen that uh, the universality of sin is Old Testament he proves it from the Old Testament we've seen that the righteousness that uh, is by faith is uh, Old Testament um, born witness by the law and the prophets all goes back to Abraham as father of many nations it goes back to Abraham as uh, being justified by faith and David and uh, he quotes Psalm 32 um, it, it goes into a church that's comprised of Jews and Gentiles, in which we understand that Gentiles come to receive the blessings given to Israel. And to understand the church and what it is, you have to understand the relationship of Old and New Testament. And then even matters of of Christian living. My well, Christian living can't that can't be Old Testament. I mean, the, the Old Testament people were you know, putting little boxes on their foreheads and putting little boxes on their arms, and uh, that's certainly. Some that we're not called to do, but yet what was embodied in that reality that the law of God is to be before our eyes, meaning instruction. The instruction of God is to be before our eyes, as much as it were written upon our forehead. You know, sometimes people use little crib sheets to put on the inside of their glasses to remember things that they've studied. They put it on the inside of their glasses. So that's, that's unethical. That's cheating. But there's a sense in which you wish you could do that, right? You wish you could have, you know, God's Word somehow implanted on your lenses or the lens of your eyes that you might be refreshed and reminded of God's Word again and again and again and again. is a simple fact is we are forgetful people and to have God's Word that close to us. You look down on your, your arm, it's there. You look between your eyes, it's there. That's the import of that. That's the meaning of that. Not little boxes, but God's law being so near to us. Um, But the ethics of the Old Testament are New Testament. Oh, no one anything. Romans 13 and verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. Well, that's clearly a Jesus thing. Jesus says we're to love one another. Uh, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, Jesus said that. Yeah, he did. Where did Jesus get it from? No, he's omniscient God. I know all that. But humanly speaking, where did Jesus learn the phrase, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself? What's that? No, that's the first commandment. You so shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Leviticus, yeah. Leviticus 19 is, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. It says, don't bear a grudge against your neighbor, but love your neighbor as you love yourself. Leviticus 19. He can't teach anything from the Bible that's not Old Testament because everything in the Bible is based upon the Old Testament. Even the commandments, the great commandments of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is Deuteronomy 6. Love your neighbors, you love yourself, is Leviticus 19. And when we fail to take seriously the whole of the Word of God, we tend to then be destructive to others. We, tend, you know, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's, the Hippocratic Oath really is very similar to that. Love does no harm. I mean, the, the, the doctor pledges, "I will do no harm. Christians need to pledge to one another. I'll stop, stop harming you. I will stop being a force of destruction and start being a force for unity. Because I think that's what's plaguing the church. Is you know, I think people think there's too much mercy in the world. There's too much kindness in the world. There's too much love, but there's not. There's not, and we're called to be those agents that demonstrate the attributes of our God, who is a God of grace and mercy, loving kindness, slow to anger, full of mercy and truth. Tim. I just briefly mentioned this when you we were talking, I think, last week about the privileges of, of the Jewish nation, you know, and how it correlates to our children today, you know, that those privileges that God had given to Israel were, were great privileges and how they were going to use them. And there is that correlation, right, with children that are being brought up in Christian homes today that... Like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, of course. Wherever the Word of God is found, there should be a sanctifying influence. Uh, 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 Tim spoke to the issue of uh, how the privilege is given to Israel that they should have used and didn't. Uh, there's a prim- similar principle with regard to children being raised in Christian homes. We seek to nurture, uh, seek to raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yeah, there's a great uh, benefit that's given, a great privilege that they have. And we uh, we hope it will be used because you know again wherever Christians go there is a sanctifying influence not only with children you know Paul could argue in First Corinthians chapter seven that your children are holy because they're being brought up in a Christian family but also your husband and wife that's unbelieving is sanctified by the believing husband or or the believing wife there is a sanctifying element that enters in where when God set apart one member of a family, there's a sense in which every other member of the family is confronted with living with a Holy Spirit-filled Christian who knows God's Word and is seeking to honor God and having constant reminders of the things of God, uh, whether willing or unwilling, it's, it's, it's there. It's, it exists. It's in, it's in the family. It's in the family. Well, it's also in the world. You know, people are blessed and they have a privilege when they have a Christian come among them to work in their midst. And, and that puts upon us the great stewardship of being honorable people, of, of, of not being weird and strange. And so people say, oh, those Christians are pretty weird and pretty strange. Uh, you know, we, we just refuse to do anything that is anything other than confrontational. That's what Christians tend to be like in our world today. Filled with enmity, filled with anger, filled with, we don't like this, we don't like that, we don't like the other thing. Um, you know, we we got into this thing in in the seventies of just being a. I think in, I don't even remember it from the seventies. I think it was the late seventies it all came in. You know, we began to have this stuff in the military about uh, homosexuals. And uh, when I was in the army, they were, they they just came and did their work. They're they're part of our unit. They uh, they were not excluded. I, I worked with homosexuals in the military, and there, there was nothing. You know, I saw I saw it to be. A, a kind and friendly and a witness to them because that's the mission field. That's the mission field. But now we're just angry at the fact that so much has been given to them. I mean, it's the same attitude that... No, I won't get into it. But anything that does not speak of grace and love, not sacrificing principle, holding fast to our principles but in a spirit of love. Yes, homosexuality is wrong. It needs to be defined as wrong. And it's not God's will. And either half of the adulterers the people work with, they're shacking up and sleeping around and somehow those people don't get the kind of anger that other people do. I don't get it. But there's just this tone of you know, we, think, we think we need to be tough as Christians. Yes, be tough. But be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. Be compassionate. You are a sinner. You're nothing else but a sinner. you a sinner saved by grace. You're nothing but a Gentile. How <laughs> you know, Jesus viewed you. I mean... What's that? God dealt with us in grace and mercy. But think of what you were—you were a gentile—and that's actually the problem that's going on here in the church: is that gentiles are getting saved, and the Jews are having a problem with that, and gentiles are having a problem with the Jews. And instead of receiving one another, there's bitterness. Got to cast off the bitterness, that seed, that root of bitterness that defi- rises up and defiles many. There's so much of it in the world. Hold fast your principles, but with tenderness, with a heart of love, compassion. Um, anyway the fulfilling of the law is love and owe no man anything except to love each other even your enemy that's Jesus' ethic to love your enemy you can't get the ethics of the Bible straight you can't get the theology of the Bible straight you can't get just from the New Testament just from the New Testament Um, we have to see it in the light of the Old Testament as well in fact, I don't even know. No, never mind. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> I think I got too far field already. But let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time to consider the importance of the whole Bible, and the brilliance of your own mind in giving us such a book. We're thankful for the letter to the Romans. We're thankful for Paul's training in in the Old Testament scriptures and how you employed him as an instrument of your grace to spread the gospel that uh, is, is witnessed to by the scriptures that everything is in accordance with the scriptures and then to teach the church how to have a whole Bible, how to integrate the New Testament realities the new covenant that Jesus has come to bring and see it in the light of Israel's history to see it in the light of our receiving adoption and glory and and uh, receiving the worship, receiving the promises, receiving this instruction, it's all ours. And for this, we're thankful. We pray, Lord, we would grow as your people. We would abound in grace as we are whole Bible Christians. We ask you to hear our prayers and be our helper as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I once thought I would do that. I would try to get people to stop saying evangelical and start saying whole Bible Christians. What are you? I'm a whole Bible Christian. (laughs) It's not going to catch on. But anyway.